Welcome to the Experience ANU podcast on iTunes. The ANU campus is always alive with plenty to see, hear and do. If you're interested in finding out more about events at ANU, then visit us at anu.edu.au forward slash events or follow us on Twitter at ANU underscore events. We update the ANU podcast regularly, so make sure you subscribe to never miss a talk. So, so I thought I'd open today with a couple of more sort of personal comments. Just my perception, or at least one individual's perception of, I think, one of the great strengths of Professor Gruen, who's not someone I ever, I ever met. Well, I think I met him once, but we overlapped. I was, a, I was a tutor here in the early 80s, but I was in the faculties and he was in a completely different part of, of campus. Um, but looking at his record, one of the things that really strikes me, and this may be a generational thing, is the breadth of interest he had. Um, broadly, I, now, I should say, if, I'm not going to join the chorus of those who, who complain about uh, academics in particular becoming far too specialised over the years and so on. I understand there are reasons why that's occurred. There are benefits to that as well. Even in Professor Gruen's day, I think there are very few people who could be said to be truly masters of all the trades they, they turned their hands to. Fred Gruen was one of them. Um, but, but I do think, um, when I look through his CV and say I, I never knew him, it's striking to me how they're all under the area of sort of broad policy, but how wide the range of policy interests he had and the contributions he made uh, across the board. Um, policy is a broad tent. He, he started off in agricultural economics and made a number of very significant contributions there. He also made contributions in trade policy, uh, politics and budgets, interestingly, which is a, a very topical issue at the moment, um, incomes policy, the assessment of macroeconomic performance, so a whole range of, of different things in which he worked. His colleagues and others who know him or knew him, have always said how open he was to ideas. He was not a man driven by ideology. He was driven by, by ideas and interests. And he would talk to people if they had interesting ideas to talk to. Uh, he, was, he was a truly an intellect in that respect. His, his entry in King's 2007 Biographical Dictionary of Australian New Zealand Economists uh, suggests that, quote, Fred was like a one-man royal commission, always balanced and giving all relevant sides of an argument. It goes on to note, however, that unlike many royal commissions, uh, his articles are always clear, concise, and with unambiguous conclusions. <laughs> so, uh, so a much more positive view. Last week we had a lecture, a very a fascinating public lecture by Professor George Maylath, uh, who's at the University of Pennsylvania and also ANU, on the contributions of the late John Nash to economics and game theory. And George mentioned in his talk that uh, one of Nash's co-recipients of the, the Nobel-type prize that economics has was John Hassani, who was in Australia for some time and at the ANU for some time. And I thought it was very interesting. In, in, in Professor Gruen had a 1964 paper in the Australian Journal of Agricultural Economics on wool reserve uh, schemes. And in that paper, if you look at the paper, there's a very technical appendix which derives the optimal intertemporal purchasing behaviour of a wool purchaser in, in the context of the model. And Professor Gruen thanks very explicitly in a footnote uh, John Hassani for putting that together. Uh, John Hassani then of, of UC Berkeley at that point. And I, I, I find it quite striking that here's a man who's obviously very committed to policy analysis and very committed to understanding how policy works, has no qualms about talking with this sort of budding high priest of, of high theory. Uh, and I say to my mind, um, this is a man clearly who took good ideas, good ideas where he could find them. And to me, that's the mark of, of a true intellectual. Um, so it's something I think that speaks very highly of Professor Fred Gruen. I, all of this is, is uh, I say, just my reflections, not having known the man, but I think it's, uh, it, it's a wonderful tribute to him. Um, I also have to say there's a, there's a personal interest in this. As the organiser of the seminar, I do have to keep things broadly within 
the ambit of Fred Gruen's interest, but this is not a constraint. Um, he's <laughs> widely interested, and we have, we're going to have a talk, a talk later this year on trade policy, and so it's, it's a very nice feature in that respect. That segues beautifully into tonight's talk, which is square, fair and square in the interest of, of Fred Gruen. Uh, there's no issue here at all with, with uh, suitability of the topic. Uh, tonight's speaker, Richard Freeman, holds the uh, Herbert Asherman Chair in Economics at Harvard University. And he's also the uh, faculty co-director of the Labor and Work Life Program at the Harvard Law School. He earned his undergraduate degree at, at Dartmouth and PhD uh, at Harvard. And he has at various times been on the faculties of Yale, Chicago, Caltech, and the LSE. And the list of affiliations and honors is, is really too long to get started on. But there are a few highlights I would point out. He received the Jacob Mincer Award for Lifetime Contribution to Labor Economics in 2006. He's been a fellow of the American Academy of Arts and Science to, since 2007. And in 2011, he was appointed the Francis Perkins Fellow of the American Academy of Political and Social Science. Like Fred Gruen, um, Professor Freeman's interests are very, are very wide. Uh, he's obviously contributed to um, labor economics, but he also made significant contributions in, in areas of diverse criminology, economic history, and demography, amongst others. Uh, he's currently serving as a member of two panels of the, of the AAAS, uh, the Initiative for Science and Technology, and at the other end of the two cultures, the, uh, the Commission on the Humanities and Social Science. And he's a member of current panels of the National Academy of Science as well. Tonight he's going to be speaking on a topic of, of massive importance, uh, that's the topic of inequality. Uh, furthermore, the talk at least promises to, uh, to address the pointy end of this topic. Um, there's a lot of work that catalogues the, uh, the incidents and the consequences of inequality, but there's very little that sort of attempts to bell the cat of, of what we can do about it. Uh, and and today's, uh, today's lecture um, addresses that, exactly that issue. So I think we're very fortunate to have a scholar of Professor Freeman's eminence come and address on this topic. Uh, Richard's indicated he's going to speak to maybe 45 to 60 minutes, and then we'll have time at the end for, for questions uh, and discussion after that. So please join me in welcoming to the podium Professor Freeman. Well, um, yeah, well thank you for inviting me. Uh, and I've been at ANU at various times over many years. And it's good to see uh, some of my older friends here. And the hospitality of being able to be here is, 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 is very nice. This is the plan of the talk. I'll try to be as, as uh, concise as I can in making the presentation. The first thing you might wonder is there was a pretty bold title. How to solve this problem? <laughs> uh, that's very bold. And I wrote it as how to. I, I thought about should I be how to try to solve the problem, uh, my thoughts on how to, or speculations on how to. But, but I, I, I really want to offer a policy solution. So it, it is, a, it is, it is uh, this. And I've got these three things I want to convince you of. The first you may just accept, but I will give you some of the evidence uh, about the inequality problem as it exists. Particularly in the US, Australia is lo uh, less, lesser inequality, but it's every advanced country, including Sweden, which we think of as this paragon of, of, of more egalitarian income distribution. And it's going to get worse. I, I think the, all of the, the, the evidence suggests that it's, it's going to grow unless we adopt some, some policies to, to stop this. The policy that I'm going to offer to you is an ownership strategy. Um, and it means that workers have to own more of the capital stock of the country. 
So we, we cannot have a small number of billionaires. Uh, we don't yet have any trillionaires, but that'll be coming. Uh, 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 but billionaires owning massive amounts of capital while uh, people maybe own a car and some household furniture. That, that, that will not work. And I'm going to give you the evidence that there is a positive, I call here a positive economics margin. And what I, what by that I mean is that when we look at the companies that have the kinds of policies that I'm proposing we try to spread more widely, we see they perform better than other companies. So that means there is some margin where we think we could get some gains. Obviously, if, if this, half, this part of the room uh, have some sort of employee ownership, profit sharing, the kinds of things I will be proposing, and this other part of the room has rejected that, that those ways of operating, it's possible that the medicine that works well on this group will not work on that group. And that we just don't know unless we try. But it, it, knowing that that group is healthier gives us at least some belief that trying that medicine on this group will also work. And, and we'll see. And then I'm going to tell you my efforts to get government, business, and labor to support this solution. And um, the, the, some of that is failures. And we're suddenly in a space where it looks as if in the US we may have some successes in, in moving this along. OK, so there's, I call this the specter of inequality. And this is the super rich. We pay the bills. We own the country, the politicians, the media, the agencies, of course, not the universities. Uh, we are pristine and, and wonderful. Uh, but of course, if they give us a large sum of money, um, things will happen that may favor them as well. And so, you, you, you know, the, the occupiers talked about the one percent, um, and then I'm said the zero point one percent in the U.S. The uh, 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 Oh, that, that, the, the decimal point is in the wrong place. <laughs> so there you got, we got blunder number one. Uh, but so be it. Now I'll give you the facts there. That, that, that's the picture. So the, it, this will be American facts. I'll give you some facts for other countries and some Australian facts, just so we, we understand the, the dimensions. I think the dimensions are truly remarkable. The occupiers talked about the upper 1%. These are the Wall Street occupiers that uh, you know grabbed national attention throughout the world. And um, that, though, the, the upper 1% in the US had 22.5% of income in 2012. But now if you look within the upper 0.1%, the, uh, excuse me, the upper 1%, the upper, z now I better put my decimals right, 0.1% had about half of the income. And that had increased massively. Then you look within the 0.1%, the, the upper 0.001% had about half, 48%. So it's, it's an amazing distribution that you, you probe inside the inequality, and half of the income is held by the upper 10% of, of, of the groups. Same thing is true within the 0.001%. Uh, now, the US Treasury puts out regularly a report on the top 400 taxpayers in the country. Um, and so that's within the upper 0.001%. And my calculation was it's the 
hope I didn't make a decimal mistake or anything like that. It's the, it's three zeros, two eight percent. Just 400 taxpayers. Um, they earned 1.5% of the adjusted growth income, which was triple what it was in 1992. It's just massive amounts going to a very, very small numbers of, of people. And then you look at what they made in dividends, 8% of dividends going to this 0.8.3% of 0.00028%. It's, it's, it's remarkable. 5.3% um, of interest, 12.3% of capital gains, which of course is taxed at preferred rates. This is for 400 uh, 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 people. And all of these doubling and tripling over the last 20 years. It's, it's, it's truly one of the most un massive redistributions of income you know, the world has ever seen in the US. The US is by, is by far uh, the most unequal of all of the major advanced economies. Uh, but if you don't think that all the other economies are moving in our direction, uh, you've got another thing coming. I want to now just do a little bit of, of decomposing the U.S. before I give you things about the other, the other economies. Uh, when I was a graduate student, I was taught that there was one of the constants of life in economics was labor's share of national income. It was always, depending upon how you measured it, somewhere on the order of uh, two-thirds uh, was, was the magic number. And you, some theorists would be writing models trying to explain why this is and so on and so forth. Um, and what we've seen now is that labor share of income has fallen in the US by, from, from, by about, depends on how you want to, to view this, but it's about eight percentage points. Let me just be, 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 be absolutely clear. Included in labor share of income in the US are the stock options to the chief executives, the profit bonuses that they make, because that is payment to labor. But actually, the, that, those amounts of money are really, or, or they are payments to labor. I don't want to deny that. But at the same time, they are also part of capital income that these people get. And if you do an adjustment by pulling off that high, uh, you, you'll get another three points down of labor's share of income. So labor's share of income here is including these, these amounts of capital that goes to very, very wealthy people. The Americans had a, had a uh, very weak recovery. It's finally, we're seeing a little bit of employment rise. But here's our employment population rate. And we essentially lost 5% of our jobs relative to our uh, uh, population. And the recovery has been going on, and it's just gone up a dribble. And then someone, in the, before the, the talk, someone said to me, the only thing I know about inequality is Gini coefficients. And I said, I promise there'll be a Gini coefficient here. And this is the Gini coefficient measure of inequality. Zooming up, the Gini coefficient uh, does not measure fully what's going on in the upper 1% and 0.01%. It, it, it's weighing the, 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 the middle of the distribution more. So this huge rise of Gini coefficient understates what is happening at the very top, where, where, where it's just a very small number of people getting huge amounts. That's our inequality. So OK, what about the rest of the OECD? And this comes from OECD data. And uh, you see Mexico is. It's the highest, but Mexico is not a, Mexico is part of the OECD. They're not an advanced country. 
Uh, the US is basically the, the, the highest of the countries, Rose. Uh, Australia is up there, but and Rose. Just about everybody increased. It fell in Turkey and Greece. Well, in Greece, I'm sure it's gone way, way up with the collapse of, of, uh, of the whole Greek uh, situation. Uh, I don't know what's gone on in Turkey more, more recently. And there are a couple of places that didn't have much change. But the vast majority of these Gini coefficients went up in all, in, in, in essentially the vast bulk of, of advanced countries. And that includes with a very large increase in Sweden. I, I do a lot of work in, in Sweden. I love Swedish friends. And my conservative Swedish friends are, are saying, what can we do to stop this huge rise of inequality in Sweden? Because you will undo the, the whole nature of that society. Labor shares fallen in all the countries as well. So there's all the other, there's the US going, the other developed countries, it actually fell even more than in the US because it was higher for whatever reason. I don't fully understand that. I've not studied that. They got a good PhD topic. They're probably measuring things somewhat differently, dot, dot. The trends are clear, however. Now, look at Australia. Um, you get, you see similar, the, 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 the figure that, that's to the, I suppose it's to the left. To the right here, yeah, it's left on here. Uh, it, it, that, that's the, the, the labor share of national income coming down uh, since the 1975, 1980s. The real wages of the 90th percentile people are going up much more. There's barely any change for the 10th percentile or the median. That's, and then we have the income inequality broken down to the more uh, 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 detailed groups, top 10, top 5, top 1%, and the top 0.1%. We don't have Australian data for the top 0.001% and so on. And you know, that was essentially negligible. It was, it was right there at the bottom zero. I mean, they had, there was such a small number of people, and now it's, 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 it's like 4%. So three and a half, four percent. So the same patterns, but Australia is still is not in the U.S. league. If we had your level of inequality, we would talk about perhaps having beaten the inequality curse. Uh, 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 Why do I think this is going to get worse? And this has to do with the, the, the nature of technology, the robots. And you just go down, and you can you can. Literally every day, if you go look at your newspapers, um, you will see some story about some robotic invention that is doing some work that humans previously done. So um, the more powerful Watson via the internet that IBM doing, I'm thinking, well, there's no game you'll ever be able to play and beat the computer if they connect your computer to the, to the Watson. Uh, journalists, uh, anesthesiologists, performing uh, surgery, uh, loading up your dishwasher, which for a robot, that's comparable to surgery. There's a lot of, of uh, you know, things that have to be done. Uh, diagnosing cancer, new cop on the beat, serving up hamburgers. Um, and, but maybe you've seen these articles and you just noticed them oh, just all over the place. And what's going on? So I, I got my three laws of robot economics. And you may remember, if you read Isaac Asimov, the, 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 there was a different set of laws about how robots behave. 
what's going on here is we're having tremendous advances in artificial intelligence. Uh, uh, it, it's just incredibly improving the ability of the robots to, to do things. We have in, improved computerization, which is intrinsically related to the, uh, to, the, to the artificial intelligence, but I think we could separate off sort of hardware and software things. A lot of the robotics things are based on biological analogies, and so one of the things that, that they work very hard with is getting the robot to learn from experience. So you don't give it a, here's what you do, you learn from experience, and there's all kinds of fascinating efforts to, to, to bring robotics. What that means is every year we get better machine substitutes for humans. So every year they're, they're, they're being able to do more and more things that we can do. It's fine. The costs of these robot substitutes are going to be declining. I mean, the whole point of, of, of production and modern things are, yes, think of your computer. Uh, if the computer you have today, if you'd bought it 10 years ago, you would have paid a massive amount of money. Um, and there were days when, when people could only do, and there still are some certain kinds of tasks, obviously, you can only do on a mainframe. And, uh, but now your laptop can do what a mainframe used to do. When I was a graduate student, I carried cards to the computer center. And you would, you would, you would put marks on it, because when you dropped them, they would get out of place. And that was the end of your program. But you hopefully marked it up in such a way that you could see that. Tr tremendous. Well, the, 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 what this is going to do is going to bound the wages. Um, I'm not going to pay the dishwasher any more than I, I can the robot. The robot costs me sort of uh, less than the dishwasher. Sorry, I fire the dishwasher and I have the robot stack the dishes into the machine. So over time, the costs of robots are going down. That means that there's a, a continual pressure on the wages of, 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 of people. Um, and then, to me, the, uh, I don't know, to me, my uh, moment of suddenly realizing, ooh, this is, what's, what, is what the story is. It's, it's who owns these robots. Um, and if you own the robot that does your job, your robot would be here listening to the lecture, and you would be lying on some beach someplace or doing something else. Uh, uh, and uh, that's fine. It's an instrument to help you uh, produce goods and earn a living. If I own the robot that does your job, tough luck. <laughs> Um, and if a small number of people own the robots that are substitutes for people, you can see the way the income distribution is, has got to go. And so and we're not going to watch this video, but there is a, this is interesting because the fact in 1985 there were 13 American billionaires. I don't know if that's true or not. But today, over 1,000, it's like 1,500 since they, they made this particular video. And they control more wealth, da, 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 da. And the exclusive world of the new super rich. Um, I don't know. They wouldn't let me in that place because I'm a professor. <laughs> now I want to jump back in history because this is a problem that the American Revolution faced. And there was a widespread belief among the founders of the United States that you inequality is incompatible with democracy. 
And I, I quote from the person that in doing research with this book, I'll publicize a little bit, the, uh, a little bit later, I, I had never known who, really what James Madison did. I don't know, whatever. I didn't take a history class since, uh, since I was in uh, high school. And, um, and James Madison was one of the, in my view, the great thinkers of the American Revolution. Let me just read this. He is talking about two equilibriums with inequality, one of which the mob of people, sort of French Revolution style, they're rioting and they're causing troubles and etc. So the, he calls them uh, uh, dupes and instruments of ambition, thinking that they can. The other one, which seems to me to be the more more state where we are now, is they become mercenary instruments of wealth. And he says, in the second, your equilibrium is an oligarchy founded on corruption. And you think about uh, crony capitalism which is a word actually in the US that's favored by right-wing people more than by left-wing people. So I don't understand quite why, but that's the way the, the language uh, goes. And then we have Justice Brandeis, uh, whose very famous statement turns out, I searched and I searched and we cannot, I could not find where he wrote this. And then there is a, a, an article that's, that says, Oh, a lot of people have searched, you know, real, more scholarly than I. And they also couldn't find it. But it was reported in 1933 that he said this. And it was kept on being reported that he said this. And it fits with what he, he believed. You either have democracy or you have wealth concentrated in the hands of the few. And that is, I would say, the classic American view. Uh, it's not, James Madison was not a weirdo in his thoughts. George Washington believed the same thing. Uh, 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 Tom Jefferson believed the same thing. Uh, uh, Benjamin Franklin believed the same thing. Uh, 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 the, uh, John Adams, who was the second president from Massachusetts, they all had this extremely strong belief that if you had inequality, you could not have a democratic society. Some of it was because, unlike uh, Australians, we had a bloody revolution to throw the British aristocrats uh, uh, out. Because some of them went to Canada, and uh, we invaded Canada at one point and lost uh, that, that particular uh, a a activity. So there is this a strong thing in the American tradition. And what is the answer that they, that they, that they, they told people? You'll notice here it says the majority fall under that description. He was talking about absence of property income. That's the belief that you have to be a farmer with your own farmland or an artisan with your own tools, and that's what kept inequality under control. That was the, the vision of the Americans. Uh, now I just want to bring a few more comments here. First, James Madison talking about something that I think everybody sees. Anytime there's a regulation, uh, it says, a new harvest to those who watch the change and can trace its consequences. A harvest reared not by themselves. This is who, there are people producing things. And then there are the guys who are changing the laws so they can get their hands on whatever it is people are producing. So he says, the laws are made for the few, not for the many. And uh, certainly in every country, the wealthy businesses and the wealthy people do whatever they can to make sure the laws benefit them at the exclusion of other people. And then this is from Stanley Fisher, 
who um, is now at the Federal Reserve, um, and um, Stanley Fisher said he thought that when the Dodd-Frank bill started, the banks would not succeed in influencing it. Boy, was I wrong. The, 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 the influence and the way in which the banks, and think of that as Wall Street and finance, have recovered is just mind-boggling. I, I gave a talk at the LSC in 2008, um, which turned out to be totally, it was naive as, as, as Stanley Fisher would have enjoyed my talk. I said, well, we're finally going to clean this mess of crooks up because the, the, this is an industry you know, based upon heisting money from hardworking people in many different ways, dot, 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 dot. And I really thought that. I think many people thought that. And no, we didn't. We, under Ronald Reagan, when, we, when, when there was a, a, the previous collapse in the American banking uh, situa uh, thing, th they actually put 2,000 bankers in jail. So I thought, well, conservative, under conservative American president, we really moved against these people and used the things. I thought, oh, my goodness, and, and uh, we would do that again, but we, we didn't. And then my friend here is a former student of mine who decided to go to Wall Street. And uh, God, uh, so he just said, "That's what it is. It's it's it's. You have the money, you get the rules set for you, and then once you get the rules set, you make more money. So it's a it's a it's a, it's a circle of sorts. Okay. So what's the solution? That's the problem, as, as I see it. Huge inequality, and um, it's not compatible with, with with democratic things over the long run, etc." So I brought in, uh, anyone know where this creature comes from? Yay, Dr. Seuss, yes. Uh, so what's the, the uh, what's going to be the, the bat in the thing? And I said it's labor's capital. Um, and here's a, the pitch for my, for the two books. The uh, citizen's share is, is on sale. And it's actually, I think this is the version which Tom Piketty endorsed all the policy suggestions, uh, which is nice. Uh, and that gives a lot of the history from the American and gives some part. This is actually a technical book. And the National Bureau of Economic Research, now, one year after a book is out, the entire book is online, downloadable for free to everyone in the world to, to get knowledge out there. So you can download that thing and look and see what, what we actually did in a, in a, in a, in a, in a detailed study. The US. Okay, so that's, that's what we're going to talk about. The US has a strong base for expanding a worker's stake in capital. Um, and th this is from a, 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 a survey done. It's the General Social Survey. Sorry, I didn't put the year. This is uh, 2014. Every four years, we, my colleagues, uh, Laza and Cruz and I, we, we, we gather enough money from businesses and somebody to buy questions on this general social survey. We, don't, we never got enough money to do it every year. So every four years, we're able to do this. And uh, this is from the latest uh, version of this. And so we have what fraction of American workers? These are only workers in the private sector. Those are not, not government people are, have owned shares in their firm. Because what we mean by ownership solution is you should be owning shares in your firm. You should be getting some monies through profit sharing. Company makes profits, you get some money. Just as company makes profits, money goes into the executives. Gain sharing is a word that refers to 
There are no profits necessarily, but if the workers, say, lowered costs or carried out some activity that accomplished what the firm wanted, they share in the gains of that. And then you have stock options. 44.7% of Americans in 2014 had these programs. So we actually have, the US is the most advanced country. And if you want to think of these things as of being some sort of socialistic business, uh, we're the most socialist in that sense of the capitalist countries. But, but it's much more palatable to think of this as spreading capitalism to more workers. That's the way I would phrase it, although we do have a presidential candidate um, in the primaries who is a socialist. So maybe if I talked to him, I would say, oh, this is socialist. But to the rest of them, we're saying it's capitalist. Uh, um, and there's the median amounts. You see, the amounts are not so big. Um, and then we took the median, the median of the amount divided by their annual earnings. And you know, you, you take this, and we'll see in a minute, these people tend to be higher income people. They're the more educated people. They're your uh, people in, uh, in, in working for Google, Intel, all the, the high tech companies with engineers and scientists, and they all get some shares. They have some, et cetera. Okay. And then we have, and this is striking for our country, this was as 2012, 14.9 um, million workers in employee stock ownership plans. Those are companies that have a trust that owns the shares in the name of the workers, has some tax advantages to buy more and more shares for the workers. And that's twice as many people as we have in the, in the, in the trade unions. In, in the, so our workers who have some stake in the system, they, they no longer have collective bargaining. But what they do have is some ownership stake. And they, these are quite successful firms, turns out. Okay, I said what the problem with this is it's primarily uh, 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 workers who are better off. So the, the percentage who own all these things or who are eligible rises with employee tenure. So you don't, you don't get these, these, these opportunities until you're fairly long in the, in the company. Tenure means years with the firm. It goes more to the higher wage people, much less to the lower paid people. And it goes up, generally speaking, with company size. Um, obviously, it's tough to have a, a, a stocks system if the company is not listed on the stock exchange. You can have private. Uh, there are private companies that do have stocks and internal exchanges, but those are, are, are more, more difficult to deal with. OK, so we have a system that says we have some ownership. Now, the, uh, the, the econometric evidence from multiple studies. And I say, it says, OK, raises productivity so the firms do better and earnings for those with it. And that's the margin. That's that the guys over here who have one of these systems or two of the systems uh, actually will, will be more productive than the guys over here. And we have you know before, after experiments, or not experiments, but before, after evidence. It says this firm changed from uh, having no profit sharing to producing it, you see productivity goes up and the earnings goes up. So we, we know that it works for the people that have adopted it and they do have a, an edge. And it makes good economic sense if you're giving an incentive in terms of some ownership or profit sharing stake to your workers, they will work harder 
and they will produce more, and it basically covers the increase in the pay, the higher pay that they're getting. So it becomes a, a virtuous circle. So here we just listed the very studies. There were 129 studies at the time we, we, we did this, this meta-analysis, and uh, two-thirds of them found favorable effects. One-tenth found negative effects. So that's a pretty good for a meta, uh, you know, meta thing being you take all the, the estimated coefficients from masses of studies and then some discussion. I was working on this at the LSC with uh, Alex Price, a colleague of mine, and um, we did a nice study, got published, um, but the UK Treasury uh, gave access to all their Treasury data to a, a consulting firm called Oxera. And they did a better job than we did because they had better data than we did. And uh, so they examined this for the Treasury to, they wanted to know the tax breaks for, this was individual employee stock ownership. The United Kingdom, un unlike the US, they give tax breaks for you to buy shares of your company uh, and for your company to offer a special program for you to buy. Uh, the Americans, no, we put it into a socialized trust. <laughs> you can still buy shares for your company, but we don't give you the tax breaks for that. We give some tax privilege for the more, more social, the collective ownership, as opposed to individual. But they did this, they estimated production functions, there's the number of things, with the confidential financial data we did not have. And they said it increased the value added per worker productivity by about 2.5% in the long run. That's just about the same estimate we get from all of our studies. Somewhere in that range, it's not a 20% increase. So the guys over here who have one of these programs, you're 2.5% more productive than the guys over there. It's, if it were 20%, everybody would be you know, running and adopting these programs. So we, 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 but, but, but it's positive, that's the point. And then I gave some other data here. These ESOPs, they're less likely to go bankrupt. They tend to be more stable. Those are the 14.9 the, the, the million, or 14.7 million American workers covered by this. They're more likely to have defined benefit plans for their retirement. Just everything says they're better uh, 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 companies. Then we, we did some, got some evidence from the BLS on how the returns of retirement monies in these companies did compared to the 401k plans. They, did better. So it, it just every piece of evidence says the guys over here are doing better than the guys over here. And the policy issue is, can we extend what is working over here to the rest of the society in so that it will reduce uh, inequality and obviously make us more productive? So this is the, the two of our studies. Um, um, you'll notice that the names very, uh, sometimes we do them alphabetically, sometimes we do them in different ways, depending upon who's, uh, my, my, uh, I've been tenured for a while, so my, it's my two co-authors or more. Uh, it's more important that they get uh, their uh, 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 um, sort of good, good publicity and so on. So we did a National Bureau of Economic Research. We surveyed 41,000 workers using internet things. Uh, we had CEOs of companies agree to write notes to the workers in the email, company email, saying, please answer the survey. It's on a separate server. The company will never see this. And it was NBR server. And our key, we wanted to say, what are workers doing that makes them more productive? And we found a lot of this was that the workers were watching other workers. 
So if I know that I, part of my pay is in the profits, and I see you not doing a good job, slacking off, uh, whatever it is, the workers, and they would tell us, yeah, we go and we tell that guy, hey, get your act together. Uh, hey, don't you know how to do your work? I'll show you. And so there is a lot more monitoring and intervention, because the workers have an ownership stake in this. Uh, and then I said this, greater employee attachment, lower turnover. We asked about how many suggestions they put in a suggestion box. Everything said you do these kind of systems, and they, and they, and they just involve people more in the process. We then went um, to a data set called The Great Places to Work. In, 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 Fortune magazine puts out every year the 100 best places to work in the US. And that's, that's determined on the basis of a company says, we want to be in this. They have to agree to have their employees, a random sample of employees, fill out questionnaires. And then the, 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 this Great Places to Work Institute does some waiting and so on. So we wanted to know, who are these companies? And of the ones that they rate as the top 100 that are published, how many have these special kinds of ownership? 17% had ESOPs. Um, that is considerably above the, uh, the companies in the US that have ESOPs. 10% uh, were majority employee owned. That is very rare, even in the ESOP world. Usually what happens is you set up one of these trusts, and they increase the share of, of workers over time, but there are very few reach the 100% uh, things. And, uh, 16% gave options to most employees, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. By every metric we could, we could find, it was that these companies rated as the best to work for had these practices. And then we looked within this very select sample of did the ones that have more of the practices turn out to be more profitable? Uh, and, and the answer was yes, the Tobin's Q is, a, is, 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 is this measure of the market to book value. And that means the market is valuing your company more than the, the, the assets, which means you're using them more efficiently and uh, possibly for the, for, for the future. And so I just, this is what we found. Those are two of our studies. Okay. Uh, people mention weaknesses with this kind of sol a solution that's going to extend ownership to, to workers. Well, the first thing every, every critic I've spoken to says, both for the right and left, they say, oh my god, it's OK for the executives to have a large part of their wealth connected to the firm, but poor workers, they, they can't do it. And, and there's an element of truth in that. You, if, if anybody will tell you, you want to diversify your investments. You don't want all of your capital and your labor in exactly the same place. Um, so that's clear. Any, any program that we, one wanted to uh, uh, publicly endorse would have to have diversification things built into it. But then we found out, uh, and this is my, my colleague, uh, uh, Doug Cruz, and, and a young woman economist, uh, 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 Anna Kurtoulis, and I've got an extra zero in there, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is not from the future. This is, it's just a recent, recent taper. And they, 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 they found that these the firms that had some of these programs for sharing income with workers had more stable employment. And that goes back to a, a, a theoretical 
point that, that Martin Weitzman made in a book called The Share Economy in the 1960s, or, or, seven, or I suppose those 70s must have been Martin's book. Uh, and uh, okay, the, be, this is because if you're doing profit sharing, the company does badly. You don't get you don't get the profit shares. There's no profits, so the amount that the company is paying you goes down compared to what it would be paying you if you had a fixed wage. And they might you might have to negotiate with the union or somebody concession on the wage. It just naturally happens. In our in our uh, 2014, this is GSS 14. We we asked about layoff rates. Were you laid off in the last year? And then we compared it between employee-owned firms and profit-sharing firms. The yes means you had one of the, the system, and the no means you didn't. What you quickly see, it's very consistent with what Cruz and Cartolas found for ESOP firms, namely, employment is more stable. So that's partially a balance to the risk that your money has locked up in the company. Um, and then it turns out the vast majority of people, 69% um, of those who own stocks in the company, they're not, they're not buying it out of their savings. And these ESOP things, you do not buy it out of your savings, which a lot of these people are. What happens is the company gets a break in borrowing money to put in to buy shares through the ESOP system. So it, it, it takes some of its profits and it, it gets various tax breaks. So that's where a lot of it goes to, and that's where the bulk of the money is. That means it's kind of an add-on to your regular income as opposed to be something that you're putting at risk. So we believe the risk thing is exaggerated, that there's, you're getting less risk in employment, losing your job, and then the, the issue becomes about this, uh, 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 the granting. So here we said, well, you might have said what I'm really doing in, this, in a profit sharing or another system, ownership is, I was paying you 10, Australia, the minimum, I don't know, $20. And now I'm going to pay. I'm going to give you some profit sharing, and I'm going to pay you just $18 or $15. And there's just this trade-off kind of phenomenon. So we looked and we said, what are the what are the workers on our survey telling us about? Are they is their pay fixed pay relative to the market lower, the same, or higher? This is the workers telling us this. So it's it's their it's their their, their uh, 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 judgment. And you look and you see, take, take the one own company stock. No, those are people who don't have company stock. 37.8% of them are saying, I'm paid lower than the market. Of those who own the company stock, 27.2%. And you go right down the list, and it is that the guys who own the stocks, who have the options, who have the profit sharing or gain sharing, are telling you they are more likely to be paid higher than uh, and less likely to be paid lower than the market. The workers may not read, may not read this evidence correctly, but that's what, that's what they say. And then we go down to a set of other things, all of which says that this is not a, 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 what is the word, a simple transformation. Your $20 of fixed pay suddenly becomes uh, $18 in, uh, in fixed pay and $2 in in, in, in profit share. Still, I mean, this is, this is data for the purpose of telling us. I just want to point out, and I'll skip over this very quickly, we're missing in this an entire area of workers' ownership, and this is through pension funds. So I'm just not going to be talking about that 
today. That's another big issue. And we have, there's a giant set of stuff there. I'm just not going to deal with it, but I'm aware of it. That it's got, you've got to talk about that. Okay, now, so we get this program, which says we want workers to have more employee ownership, uh, more profit sharing, more gain sharing, and so on. And can we sell a program like this to deal with inequality? Extending these things to from the, this part of the room to everybody else in, 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 in the room. So I began to sell this stuff shortly after 2011. 2011, I thought I was being smart. Um, the Hamilton Project is a project set up by Wall Street people. It's, uh, it's, in, it's in Washington, D.C. And I convinced them to give us, I've forgotten, $10,000, $20,000 to fund uh, some of our research. And we would then make a big public presentation. The, uh, they, they, they looked at the things. When, they was, when we had our po we had very explicit policies, and I'll talk about the policies, but they're very American-specific. I don't think you want to the, the, the details of American policies. And uh, they told me, first time in my career ever, I was told, no, you cannot make a presentation at the conference, and uh, go away. And I said, why, to the particular guy? And he said, this is all bullshit. He said, my secretary, she ain't smart enough to own anything. And what are you talking about? It's basically only we. This is Democratic Party, Wall Street person. Uh, I was just horrified. And for, for a short period thereafter, I didn't know what to do. Well, we got another think tank in Washington, CAPS, which is the Center for American uh, uh, Progress. They published the, 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 the study. And then I decided this was just offensive. Even if this policy is not going to succeed, let's at least have people hear it and criticize it. Uh, and I, it's, it's, well, I've been, I've been censured once before so, uh, um, by trade unions on something, but they didn't want to hear the message. And, you know. but, so I went, then went around last three, four years um, talking about this. The President Obama's staff called me up in 2012 and said, the President wants to make a powerful speech about inequality and what we're going to do about it. Do you have a plan? I said, oh, yes, I do. <laughs> <laughs> and I sent them the plan and so on and so forth. But of course, the same Wall Street guys who run this Hamilton project are sitting in the President's office. Um, and we got back. They, they, they called me the day he was giving his speech. And they said, oh, you'll be so happy the president's going to do a very radical statement. I'm thinking, oh, boy. Because uh, I also promised, I said, we can deliver to you 10 to 15 right-wing Republican congresspeople who will endorse this. You know, so we can get a bipartisan concern for this. Because some people on the right want to do it, too. And uh, they said, the president's going to endorse a higher minimum wage. I thought, wait, but the president can't do anything about a higher minimum wage. What is, on earth is this about? Uh, Died. I then went to Europe. The, the European Union has been in trouble for a while. And I, I, I spoke to some European characters. I was told by European business people, you better go and talk to the European unions, that there are some business people who are interested, European unions are not. Spoke to the European unions. The French, French union leader stood up and said, you give us trust to the state, and the SMIC is the minimum wage, and Monsieur Hollande. And they, they, it didn't work. Uh, 
I went to another European thing. I just go down the list. 2013, the Council of Economic Advisors of the President asked me and my colleagues to come and present the ideas. So we presented them to them. Uh, another presentation, I just, I went through all these, these talks I was giving. It's like, oh my God, I've been running around like mad. Uh, spoke to the trade, the trade Union Congress, the TUC union leaders. Uh, then in 2015, uh, there's a, a commission set up called the Inclusive Prosperity Commission, which was uh, chaired by Larry Summers and Ed Balls. Ed Balls is without a job, and Larry Summers is ex-Harvard president, but also uh, ex-Secretary of Treasury and part of, I would say, the, the Wall Street cabal. And they, they came and said, could you present your stuff to us? I made a presentation. The commission voted, I, well, they'll say unanimously, but it was there was one vote against, uh, or one not, one not too favorable for this plan, but it was it was basically everybody else, and they just rammed through that they suddenly think this is a good idea. It's getting someplace. In March of this last year, the uh, Swedish trade union LO called me up and said, "What are we going to do about inequality in Sweden?" I said, "I've got a plan. <laughs> uh, you may not like it." Uh, and uh, I made a presentation to, to, the, to, the, to the Swedish trade unions. So suddenly people are talking ab about this. And then, uh, two weeks ago, I suppose, Secretary Clinton suddenly endorsed the part of, the, of, of, of what was our plan. Uh, um, I mean, the, the, the general theme. She, there was a, her own bill that she was going to favor, of course. And that was followed by the next day, the New York Times says, oh, could you write an op-ed piece about this? The number of times we tried to get the major US newspapers to pay some attention, but we're trying to say to them, oh, you got scholarly work that shows that this, is, this part of the room is doing better than that part, and that we should do things about this, et cetera. So then we, we, we this came out just a few, 12 days ago, or, or not, uh, not sure how many days ago it is in the U.S. It's different than here, that I know. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, but we started off saying, okay, Mrs. Clinton said she wanted to give her workers the chance to share in the profits they helped produce, and they actually had a, a, a plan. It, was, it wasn't the plan, was, we had much more detailed things that were much sharper, and, but, but this was fine. And I say, we said this was, uh, as social scientists, we were just so glad to see this discussion. Now, our plan involved changing a tax loophole, uh, which is in the Internal Revenue Code, which gives companies that give capital share, shares of income attached to capital as performance bonuses, they get a tax break, meaning we're actually giving an incentive for, for, the, for the people at the top in the corporations to own more and get more income. And we, 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 it's just one of these remarkable parts of our tax code put in by, by Mrs. Clinton's husband. Uh, but uh, as a way to um, undo well, uh, an effort in the tax code to, to try to penalize companies that were paying executives enormous sums of money. So this, we, have, we have our discussion of that. So we said, okay, well, she, she picked on one thing, we'll put the other things down. And then we, this is a sentence here that we said all levels of government, it's very important, that did not be, have to require the Congress to pass things, it could be any level of government in our country, can decide on different incentives to companies that implement profit sharing and employee share ownership. 
And I'm particularly favorable to this awarding government contracts. You award government contracts now in our country to if you have a minority company or a minority head or a woman head of it, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to balance, to, you know, to help groups that, um, well, what about employee-owned firms or firms that, that are uh, having profit sharing for everybody rather than just for the people at the top? Small changes like that can, can, can have, have an effect. And so you see the, 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 the end of this. Uh, 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 claim, and so it's not the only answer, you know, to solving inequality problems, um, and uh, we need probably a lot more things in many different dimensions, but it it is a critical step. Now, why I think this is actually going to become real and get its trial, there is absolutely nothing. You know the word alternativos. That's um, the um, the the the, uh, the the German Prime Minister she says there's nothing else but austerity there's no other alternative well in this case there is art alternatives to austerity and if austerity fails you can't just keep preaching it you know as it fails saying there's nothing else you can do well you'll see what happens to the European Union in the next uh, couple of years if that's all they're telling all their citizens you got austerity we got to keep the banks going got to have austerity. But here, there really is nothing else that anybody has offered that I regard as plausible. Strong unions and collective bargaining. Well, in the US, the unions are down to where they have 7% of the private sector. They're under attack in the public sector. In literally every country in the, in the advanced world, the unions are in decline. Australia's the same. So it's everywhere. Well, maybe you could bring them back, but I don't see any way that they're going to come back, uh, et cetera. And I said, the battle is between labor and capital. Capital's going to win. It's just Luddite attack on the robots. Well, I don't want to go against the, uh, the, the, the robot police uh, that character or the robot soldier. That's crazy. Piketty suggested a global tax on, on capital. Uh, and you can't get. I'm sure you couldn't get the Australians and the New Zealand to agree on the same uh, tax codes. You can't get countries in Europe with the same currency to agree. The Americans and the Canadians don't agree. And certainly, you'd have to invade the Cayman Islands uh, <laughs> you know, uh, to, to, to get this. That, that's not realistic. Uh, the national government, they would shift to more progressive taxes. No. I, I then sometimes people say, oh, the only problem is it's the workers aren't smart enough. We've got to give them better schooling. Well, every single country, the schooling has gotten up and the inequality's gotten worse. It just, it just doesn't make sense, that kind of solution. Minimum wages, you have a minimum wage that I think does, does some good. Uh, the British, when they put in their uh, national minimum wage, I think it did some, some, some good. The US, we're, we're pushing now for $15 state and city minima does nothing for the extreme at the top. So if I'm a, one of these uh, moguls with billions of dollars, I say, OK, I pose the minimum wage, of course, because it reduce some of my profits. But, I, but in the end, I say, yeah, OK, that, the minimum wage. Uh, just let me come off with my big, big share. And then what we found is that we get support from right-wingers as well as left-wingers. Uh, when, I, when, I, when I offered to the, to, to, to the uh, Obama guy, I said, look, I can Think of this. We can deliver to you major companies. Google 
Intel, companies of that kind, not, not those particular companies, but because they all have these kind of systems. We're, we're not inventing a policy regime that doesn't exist someplace. And at the beginning, I said, there's just such a large fraction of American workers have a little bit of this. And we, we can extend it. So it's not a pie in the sky. So I, don't, so I think it's going to get its trial, because there's nothing else people can offer. If you have something, you know, raise your hand at a minute and, I'll, and I would listen to anything else. Then this is very interesting in English. It's not true in, in, in most in the other languages. When we talk about equity, we have dual meaning. It means fairness, and it also means ownership. And they are intrinsically linked in the, in the English language and, and if we're in our way of thinking about things. Yes. And that the American Revolution was all about guys who said, you have to own your own farm. You have to own your own this. Now, obviously, owning a farm is not what's going on, but it means owning part of the business capital that is producing or, or playing a big part in production of the, of the wealth. And then why it might fail. Could be we take the policies from here, apply them over there, and they don't work. We don't know. We have to, I mean, it just may not take. Anytime we put government incentives in, and when Mrs. Clinton was, was doing her plan for this, a special tax break for people who introduce a profit-sharing system, I immediately started saying, oh my god, let me think of what kinds of ways I can, I can you know, trick this. And how can we dot, dot, dot. And she put it in, her plan was for two years. So you get it in, and, and then it's a little more difficult to trick it for two years and then get it out. You're going to have problems. So, uh, but they will try this. And, and, and then they may have enough power that anything we try to, 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 to do, including these pro-capitalist, if I phrase it that way, initiatives, no. The, the gentleman at the, this Hamilton Commission basically said, capitalism is for smart Wall Street guys like me, not for anybody in this room, unless there's someone from Goldman Sachs here, uh, and et cetera. So, but I have my answer to all this. So, so I'm, I'm very interested in mathematical simulations, high-powered economic stuff. So I simulated a model in dynamic, multi-dimensional general equilibrium in Clabby Yao space. And that's after my, my, my friend, Professor Yao of our math department. Um, and you can see the simulations. Um, that doesn't look like me, no. I never had a mustache that big. And this, and that's a weird hat to wear in any case. Uh, and then there's a weird hat down there. So th there's no question from our si simulation models this can work. Um, and then I said, the Lord willing and the creek don't rise. That's an American saying from the farm guys that say, yeah, we're going to try hard. But we hope the Lord, I was going to say the invisible hand willing as <laughs> an economist, but then I, I did decide not to change that. And the creek don't rise, meaning obviously it's going to be tremendous luck and you need the right breaks. But for the first time, we have people, including a major presidential candidate, in the business of, of, of doing this. And someone today said to me, oh, Mrs. Clinton, that's okay. You got to get Donald Trump to be in favor of this, <laughs> and I'm working on it. <laughs> so that's that's the uh, my solution, a solution of spreading the ownership of capital and profits to all 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 to more people in the society. Okay, that's so I'm done.
We hope you enjoyed this talk. Did it inspire or even provoke you? Let us know via Twitter at ANU underscore events. If you're interested in learning more about the research and ideas that come out of ANU, then why not consider a free subscription to ANU Reporter magazine? ANU Reporter tells the stories of the greatest minds in Australia, brightest students and finest alumni. Visit news.anu.edu.au forward slash publications and click on the ANU Reporter magazine link to find out more.